Hey creeps, I'm Taylor and this is TGI Crime Day. episode is going to be a little bit different. I did a full episode about Kristen Smart back in 2020. It was actually the fifth episode of this podcast long before I had a YouTube channel. Since then, there have been some major, huge updates to this case. So I decided to take my first script for this case, revamp it and create a YouTube video for it. So this is going to be in two parts. Part one will be from the time that Kristen went missing in 1996 up until 2020. And then part two will be all of the recent updates, arrests, and trials that have happened since then. Kristen Smart went missing in 1996 after leaving a party with a fellow student from her university. From the outside, with so many years gone by, it's very easy to speculate that Kristen had been murdered by this person. But from the get-go, this case was handled so poorly, and it wasn't until almost 20 years after she went missing that people finally started paying attention to Kristen's case again. Her family never gave up, and they never stopped fighting for justice, and with the help of the media attention from the Your Own Backyard podcast, this cold case was given the attention it deserved, finally, and the correct person is behind bars, finally. Obviously, this did not happen overnight. It took many, many years, and a lot of developments happened over those years. So to quote one of my all-time favorite true crime YouTubers, Stephanie Harlow, to understand how we got to the end, we have to go back to the very beginning. I love Stephanie. Do you guys love Stephanie? The first time I heard about Kristen Smart was when I stumbled on the Your Own Backyard podcast. Chris Lambert is the host, and it is an incredible podcast. In the first episode, Chris mentions that at the time that that podcast came out, there was very little media coverage and not a ton of articles or news specials made about Kristen, and he was completely right. The podcast started in 2016, and for a case like Kristen's with so many stories within it, I was shocked that it was something I had never heard of. I had never heard the name Kristen Smart before. I did my best to dig around, and I didn't want this just to be a summary of his podcast, but I did get the majority of my information from the Your Own Backyard podcast because that is the only place that has done a true deep dive into this heartbreaking and often infuriating case. I will barely be able to scratch the surface in these two episodes, so I highly, highly, highly cannot recommend enough that you listen to the full story on Your Own Backyard. Kristen Denise Smart was born on February 20th, 1977 in Augsburg, Germany. She spent part of her childhood in Germany, but her parents decided to move to the U.S. when she was three. She spent most of her childhood and her teen years in California, and Kristen was a very sweet girl, and a lot of people in her community knew her and were very familiar with her. She grew up babysitting for multiple families and was always their first choice for a babysitter because she connected with kids really well. Her mom described her as having a zest for life, even from a young age, and when she got an idea, she went after it. She didn't give up. Kristen's family moved around quite a bit when she was a kid, but she made friends very quickly and always adapted to her new surroundings. While Kristen was in high school, she jumped in and started working her butt off to graduate a semester early so she could be accepted into a four-year college program. She doubled her high school class load and was taking a few extra classes at San Joaquin Delta College. Her hard work paid off, and she was accepted to UC Santa Barbara and had made a down payment on a dorm there. But she decided that she wanted to go to college a little closer to her hometown, so Kristen started college in 1995 at California Polytechnic State University, which is a mouthful. It took me five times to say that correctly, so moving forward, I will call it Cal Poly. 
Kristen originally wanted to study architecture, but she switched to communications. She had dreams of traveling the world as a reporter, which I think is incredible. Uh, When Kristen started at Cal Poly, she wasn't able to get a dorm room on campus, so she lived in an on-campus apartment with a roommate. And even though her roommate was nice, Kristen really wanted to have that experience of living in a dorm on campus, so she put her name on the waiting list. And after finishing her first semester at Cal Poly, she spent Christmas break with some friends, and when she returned to school after Christmas, she was finally able to get that dorm room on campus like she wanted. She moved into room 120 at Muir Hall in January of 1996. On the evening of May 24th, Kristen got dressed up and ready to go out for the evening. She put on a gray crop top, black shorts, and a pair of red Puma tennis shoes. Kristen and three of her friends headed out to find a party, and after driving around for a while, Kristen suggested going to a party at one of the fraternity houses. Um, It was a birthday party for a guy named Ryan Fell that everyone called Swampy, which is the weirdest nickname, and I just am very curious where that came from. But I digress. Kristen was really insistent on going to this particular party and was begging her friends to go with her. And none of them really wanted to go to that frat house. I don't blame them. Peter King of the LA Times described these certain frat house parties as, quote, a mix of testosterone and tap beer that makes female students less than comfortable, end quote. That does not sound like a great place to be. So Kristen's friends did not want to go with her to the party, but they dropped her off a couple of blocks from that party and headed back to their dorms while Kristen headed towards the frat house. They told her to be careful and that they would see her later, and Kristen headed off to the fraternity party on her own. There are differing opinions on what Kristen got into at this party. Some people said they didn't see her drink at all, and other people said that she was highly intoxicated. Kristen was beautiful and friendly. She was six feet tall, so people remembered and definitely took notice. Around 2 a.m., Kristen was found passed out on a neighboring lawn by two students, Cheryl Anderson and Tim Davis. The two helped Kristen to her feet and said that they would take her to her dormitory, and after seeing Kristen stumbling around with Cheryl and Tim, a third student, Paul Flores, volunteered to help. Tim split off from the group first since he lived off campus and had driven himself to the party, so Paul and Cheryl continued to walk with Kristen toward Muir Hall. They were passing Cheryl's dorm, so Paul offered to continue walking Kristen home since he lived closer to Muir Hall and because he just was such a knight in shining armor. Hi, really quick, I feel like it's worth pushing pause here to talk about a couple of red flags. And really quick, before anybody says, was she drinking at this party? What was she wearing? She shouldn't have been drunk. She shouldn't have been alone. Guess what? The only person responsible for what happened to Kristen at that party is the person who decided to take advantage of a situation and attack a young woman who was simply existing. So, in case you didn't know, at TGI Crime Day, we don't do victim blaming and we don't do slut shaming and we don't do women shouldn't be out alone shaming. And in a perfect world, we wouldn't even have to have this conversation. In a perfect world, women would be able to go to parties and drink as much as we want and get home safely without being harmed. But unfortunately, we don't live in a world where women get to just exist because there are monsters like Paul Flores in this world. Listening to true crime has really helped me pay more attention to my surroundings. It's taught me that as women, we need to look out for each other. So when you can, please go places in groups. Make sure you have a safe way to get home. And if you see someone acting weird at a party make noise about it. Unfortunately, we can do all of these things and horrible things still happen. So all we can do is try our best and stand together. um, Because as much as we all know all of these things, there will still be monsters lurking in the shadows waiting to take advantage of these situations. And unfortunately, we see it time and time again. (sighs) I'm early in the episode to do a rant, but I will end this rant by saying that most importantly, again, What happened to Kristen was not her fault or her friend's fault. The only person to blame is the piece of garbage that took advantage of her being drunk at a party. All right, moving on. 
The next day, on May 25th, Kristen's roommates realized that she hadn't made it home the night before, and they called campus police to try to report her as a missing person, but unfortunately, since it was Memorial Day weekend, the campus police didn't take Kristen's roommates seriously, and campus police believed that she had just gone off on a last-minute camping trip. You know, that she didn't tell anyone about and left for in the middle of the night and didn't take any supplies or money or camping items with her. Don't get me started. (laughs) I'm not going to do another rant, but I just can't stand these cases where it's like, oh, she's an adult. She can leave on her own. I just think it would be better to be overly cautious than to just act like it doesn't matter at all. Like, just check. Just check. So Kristen never came home, and her parents never heard from her either. She had a phone call date with her family every Sunday evening, and since she didn't have a cell phone, they had a specific time that they would talk on Sundays. But on Sunday the 25th, Kristen didn't call home. The police also wouldn't take her parents seriously when they tried to file a missing persons report, and it took four days before someone finally took them seriously. Kristen's parents have criticized the police for their actions, rightly so, saying that they could have lost very valuable evidence in that time, and I completely agree. I do appreciate the fact that police have been very open about this mistake, and they used Kristen's case as a learning experience, and I hope that they have changed the way that they handle missing persons cases moving forward. It seems like they have, and there's been policies made. We'll get into it. Once they finally got it together and began looking into Kristen's disappearance as a disappearance, they looked into her last known movements, starting with people who attended the party. Apparently, many of the people who attended this party haven't been super open about the events that happened. Some of the attendees were members of the Kappa Chi fraternity, and I don't know a ton about how things work, but from what I understand, there's a pretty strict what happens in the frat stays in the frat, like protect your bros kind of an attitude. I don't know why we even have fraternities anymore because it seems like that's how it goes every time something like this happens. Apparently... Cal Poly has had some incidents over the years with fraternities making less than great choices to cover their asses after screw-ups. In 2002, another fraternity at Cal Poly, Sigma Chi, threw a party one night where they served a charming little drink that they liked to call Faderade, where the main ingredient was GHB, more commonly known as the date rape drug. After attending a party at the Sigma Chi house, a student named Brian Gillis was found dead in his apartment after asphyxiating on his own vomit. Once word got around, the Sigma Chi bros headed out to a nearby lake for what they called a round table discussion, and this led to more suspicion that they had been trying to get their story straight to avoid getting in trouble for Brian's death. Shortly after this incident, Sigma Chi was basically shut down and had to pay over $300,000 to Brian's parents in a wrongful death lawsuit. Not enough money. There There is no amount of money that would be enough money for these type of situations. I just can't. In the Your Own Backyard podcast, Chris talks about other shady things that happened with different fraternities at Cal Poly over the years. Basically, the idea that something bad happened to Kristen at a frat house, such as her being drugged with GHB, isn't out of the question, and it wouldn't be that wild of a guess. Many people who attended the party wouldn't give up a lot of information about what they saw or remembered that night. However, there was one thing that could be agreed upon. Kristen was last seen stumbling home with three students, and eventually she was last seen alone with Paul Flores. Many, many, many people had stories to tell about Paul's behavior at the party. He had been flirting with many different girls, trying to get their attention with no luck. One student said that while she was asking around for a piece of gum, Paul led her out to the backyard like he was going to go get her gum from his car or something and tried to kiss her. And when she tried to push him away, he got pissed, of course, because that's who he is. Tim Davis, one of the students who later helped Kristen after she fell in the yard, said that during the party, he heard a loud crash. And when he looked up, he saw Paul lying on top of Kristen and was unsure whether Kristen fell into him or if Paul fell into Kristen. And then a third student also had a weird interaction with Paul where during the party, Kristen had approached a guy named Trevor, 
who she was chatting and flirting with, and eventually she pulled Trevor into the bathroom and kissed him. And according to Trevor, it didn't go any further than that, but when Trevor left the bathroom, Paul was standing there waiting for him, asking what he did with Kristen. At first, Trevor was worried that this guy was Kristen's boyfriend, but quickly realized that it was just Paul being weird and creepy. Cheryl, the other student who was helping Kristen get home, also had a story about Paul. She said that her and her friends always avoided Paul because he had a tendency to obnoxiously try to flirt with the girls and would grope them in their dorms. They even called him Chester the Molester and hated being around him. The night of the party, Cheryl said that Paul was basically trying to get rid of her, saying that he didn't need help to walk Kristen home. But Cheryl didn't like that idea, so she stayed with them and helped to prop Kristen up, who was stumbling around. When they got to Cheryl's dorm room, she went to go inside. She was basically desperate to get away from Paul at that point. He actually tried to kiss her before he continued helping Kristen home. She, of course, refused, and he asked her for a kiss on the cheek. Again, she refused, and again, Paul couldn't take a hint and asked her if he could get a hug before he left. Again, Cheryl refused and basically ran inside, and I can't say that I blame her. After hearing these stories, campus police contacted and interviewed Paul five days after Kristen went missing. Paul told police that he had walked Kristen as far as Santa Lucia Hall, where his dorm was, and that they parted ways. Kristen headed off toward Muir Hall. Here's a red flag that bothers me. If Kristen was intoxicated enough that she had passed out somewhere, she was clearly in no state to get home by herself, which is what everyone said. That was the whole point in three students walking with her, and then two, and then one. So the very high possibility that she had been drugged and the fact that she basically couldn't hold herself up doesn't lead anyone to believe that she all of a sudden was coherent enough to just walk herself home and Paul went into his dorm and sent her on her way. Multiple people confirmed that she could barely walk without someone holding her up. And here's another bright red flag. At the time of his interview, campus police noticed Paul had a black eye. Paul had a whole plethora of tales to explain this black eye. In one story, he had no idea where it came from. He just noticed it that morning. In another story, he told police that he'd gotten hit in the face while playing basketball with some friends. And police, of course, followed up with these friends who told them that Paul showed up to the game with a black eye, scratches on his arms, and skin knees. Lastly, Paul told police that he'd been working on his truck and fell into the steering wheel. And when police called him out on his story changing so many times, he told them that it was because he was embarrassed that he'd been so clumsy working on his truck. Because you know how campus cops are here to judge your agility and mechanical skills? The campus police didn't take photos of Paul's black eye or his scratches, but luckily, one thing went right in the beginning of this. Luckily, Paul got pulled over on May 27th and was arrested for driving with a suspended license. Earlier that year, Paul had been charged with a DUI and then failed to show up for court, putting out a warrant for his arrest. This arrest was really lucky because the Arroyo Grande PD took a mugshot of him for the suspended license, and that was the only photographic proof of that black eye. The Arroyo Grande police had no idea who Paul was because the Cal Poly campus police had refused to file an official missing persons report at this point. So it's really unfortunate because if the campus police had been in contact with the Arroyo Grande PD, they could have communicated that this guy was suspicious, etc. It turns out that Paul actually had many different police reports filed against him. Different incidents of him climbing onto a girl's balcony and watching her through her window, making weird harassing phone calls to another room, and multiple sexual molestation allegations. None of these things were taken seriously. The stories of Paul's odd behavior, if you can even call it odd and not just disgusting and inappropriate, the stories of Paul's odd behavior went on and on, including girls he went to high school with who referred to Paul as Crazy Paul or Psycho Paul. No matter which way you spin it, there were a lot of red flags that were basically ignored as, like, boys will be boys. 
Even with all of these stories stacked up against him, Kristen's disappearance was not taken seriously. It took police 11 days to search Kristen's room for any clues, and it was 16 days before they searched Paul's dorm. Yet another red flag came up in Paul's interview with campus police. As things started to get a bit more heated, Paul suddenly told them that he needed to leave. Since he wasn't under arrest because the campus police didn't call the actual police, he was basically free to go whenever he decided they couldn't hold him. So Paul told them that he needed to go because he needed to get to his mom's house to help clean up some cement that they had just laid. Spoiler alert, this cement is going to keep coming up again and again in this case and drive you absolutely insane. Paul left his police interview and police didn't speak with him again for quite a while. It took the campus police over a month to finally turn Kristen's case over to the San Luis Obispo County Sheriff's Office. By the time they were able to perform a search on Paul's dorm, it was June 29th. All of the students had moved out for the summer and a cleaning crew had already gone through all of the dorms. It's infuriating. <laughs> police brought in cadaver dogs to search the dorms and these dogs were allowed to go in every dorm room on the Cal Poly campus. Their handlers weren't given any outside information on the case so that they would remain completely unbiased. They were just told to bring the dogs to search for signs of human decomposition. These police dogs were trained by the California Rescue Dog Association, or CARDA. I could go on and on telling you about how cool CARDA is, but basically they are a volunteer-based group of specialty trained dogs to detect forms of all human remains. These dogs have to go through over two years of training before they can take on real-life cases. These are hardworking, highly trained dogs who were let loose at the dorms at Cal Poly. They searched two buildings with no alerts. They got to Santa Lucia Hall and one of the dogs, a golden retriever named Sierra, signaled outside of room 128. 30 minutes later, a second dog was led into the hallway at Santa Lucia, and the handler was not told about the previous alert to keep things unbiased. The second dog also alerts at the door to room 128. A third dog brought in. Same rules, again, alerts at room 128. One at a time, each of these dogs were let into the room and they each alerted at the same place, a corner of the mattress on the left side of the room. The dogs then finished searching the other two floors of the building and none of them alerted to anywhere else, none of them stopped anywhere else. At this point, the police removed the mattress and the bed frame from the room and brought in a fourth dog. This dog also alerted at room 128 and when he was let in, he alerted to the exact same spot where the bed used to be. He also signaled to the telephone in the room and one of the trash cans. And then this is a really cool part of this investigation. To test the trash cans to make sure that there was no biases in the search, police lined up the trash cans with all of the other trash cans from that hall that look the exact same. The dogs still alerted at the same trash can. One at a time they were led in that hallway. One at a time they each picked the same trash can. And there's obviously no surprise here. When they looked into who was living in room 128 last, it was Paul Flores and his roommate, Derek Say. Since this was a college campus, of course, word travels very quickly, and this spread like wildfire. And of course, everyone was pointing fingers at Paul being the last person to see Kristen. There are many, many articles of women speaking up about their encounters with Paul. Some are just weird and uncomfortable, and some of them are absolutely terrifying. One student told police that he jokingly said to Paul, Hey Paul, what'd you do with Kristen? And Paul allegedly replied, She's home with my mother. At this point, it's pretty obvious that Paul is the obvious and only main suspect. By the time police showed up with a search warrant for Paul's parents' house, Kristen had already been missing for two months. I feel like I always have to caveat this. Police are incredible. There are so many police officers and detectives who do their jobs with a talent and a skill and a, what's the word I'm looking for, compassion, that are what police officers should be. But the problem is, 
we would not be talking about half of these stories if there was not things going wrong on the back end with police officers. So I'm not here to criticize anybody. This is part of the story. Please don't get mad at me. I'm not here to, I'm not trying to be whatever. Obviously, there's a lot that goes into getting a search warrant, and I'm sure it's a whole thing. Everything has to be exactly lined up. There's a lot that goes into it and a lot of legal things that have to happen, which is good because it protects random citizens from having houses being searched, etc. But seriously, two months is a long time when someone is missing and there is clearly a suspicious person involved. The only problem is that when police finally did do a search, it was really quick, and the only things they ended up taking from the Flores home was a police baton that's legal for civilians to have, and three newspaper clippings that they found about Kristen's disappearance. One was hidden under Paul's dad, Ruben's mattress, one under Paul's mattress, and one was hidden in the kitchen. Why? The newspaper articles were a very weird red flag because at that point, Paul hadn't even been named a person of interest, so why would you hold on to these, especially to hide them under your mattresses and try to keep them away from anybody? Here's something that's going to drive you insane. They didn't bring any cadaver dogs during this search, they didn't even bring a forensic team, and they didn't search any of the Flores' cars. You're going to be even more annoyed about this later because these things were extremely important and they were completely ignored. I'll just leave it at that. We'll get into it. Later, the sheriff's department said that this was because they weren't physically looking for Kristen at this time. They were just looking for her belongings. Why they didn't think her belongings might be in one of the cars Paul had access to is a mystery to me, especially when there was evidence of human remains found in his dorm room. Why wouldn't you just check? I don't get it. Again, not here to criticize police. They were probably handling the situation to the best of their abilities, which I hope so. No one can do it perfect. It can never be a perfect investigation. But in hindsight... It makes me insane. Apparently, Paul's parents were in the middle of getting a divorce, and Paul's mom, Susan, had moved out of their main house and into her own place nearby. Susan's home was the one they had been using as a rental property, but Paul had access to this other home as well. The police didn't know that this was their living situation, so they didn't even know Susan's place was part of the equation. They didn't even know it existed. And this is a huge bummer because, remember, Paul allegedly made that offhanded comment to his friend that he took Kristen to his mom's house and had a story about needing to help her clean up a cement mess right around the time that Kristen went missing. The second Flores home wasn't on police's radar because they didn't know it existed, so I will give them that. No one's fault. So there were these weird things in Paul's story, and later, police found out that Susan had listed the house as a rental property, but then removed the listing immediately a week after Kristen went missing. So it's just, it's suspicious. It's weird. Susan's property stayed unknown to police for yet another two months. In September of 1996, Susan listed the house as a rental property again. A young married couple and their son moved into the house on October 1st, and when Joe and Mary Lassiter moved into Susan Flores' rental property, they had no idea all of these rumors were going around about Paul's possible involvement in Kristen's disappearance. Not long after moving in, the Lassiters started getting letters and postcards from people they didn't know. These letters were arriving one after the other, urging them to cooperate with police and to tell their son to come forward with his information. Their son was only six years old at that time, so obviously they knew those letters were not meant for them, but it seemed like they did their best to just ignore the letters at first and stay out of it. A few weeks after they moved in, Mary was washing her car in the driveway when she found an earring on the ground. When she picked it up, she noticed it had a dark red smudge on it, and Mary showed it to her husband Joe, and they both agreed that it looked like dried blood. Mary and Joe worked at a nearby hospital, and I mention this because these are medical professionals. They aren't going to freak out and think that something is dried blood if it's actually just dirt or something like that. Unlike myself, who sees any kind of weird stain 
anywhere, especially in hotels, I jumped to the conclusion it's a bloodstain when really it's probably just like spilled milkshake or something. Anyways, Mary made a really smart choice in this situation and decided to put the earring in a Ziploc bag just in case for safekeeping. A few weeks later, two detectives arrived at the house to interview them and they made sure they didn't have any information about the Flores family. This was long before the time of Googling, and they didn't have social media, obviously, so word didn't spread as quickly about these things, so they didn't know the whole story about Kristen and Paul's connection. Joe decided it would be best for them to hand the earring over to detectives, and not everyone is a true crime creep like us, who would look into the ins and outs of what was going on in their neighborhood, so the Lassiters just did what the detectives asked and handed over the earring and tried to stay out of it. In November of 1996, Kristen's parents stopped by a gas station that Paul was working at and tried to reason with him. When Paul realized who they were, he hid in a maintenance closet until they left. Not long after this, Paul quit his job and moved to Orange, California and enlisted in the Navy. Kristen's parents, along with their attorneys, were really worried about him basically escaping by joining the Navy. Investigators just didn't have quite enough evidence to pursue a murder case, especially without Kristen's body, so instead they filed a wrongful death lawsuit against him. Because of this, Paul was rejected by the Navy and they were able to move forward with the official court interviews with witnesses in January of 1997. Unfortunately, this did not go well. Both Cheryl and Tim, the students who saw Kristen with Paul, did not want to associate themselves with the case. Tim refused to show up for his deposition, and Cheryl said that she actually didn't see Kristen that night. Which is ridiculous, in my opinion. I understand being worried about coming forward with information. I worry, you know, I understand about um, worrying for your own safety. But to go from saying that you saw them together, that he was strange towards you, and then she was the last person you saw with him before she went home and then she went missing, and now you're saying you didn't see her at all, it breaks my heart. Because that could have been such a huge, important testimony, but I will keep my opinion at that. The Lassiters were also interviewed again at this time, and it's a good thing they were because they brought up that earring that they found. This was the first time that Kristen's parents or their lawyers even heard about this earring. The detectives who took it from the Lassiters didn't tell anyone connected to the case about it. They tried to set up a time with the San Luis Obispo Sheriff's Department so that the smarts could go and actually see this earring and decide if it belonged to Kristen. The Sheriff's Department took over a month to get back to them, so Stan and Denise finally decided to just show up at the Sheriff's Department and demand to see the earring. Good for them. I hope you're ready to be pissed again, because when they got there, they were informed that the earring wasn't there because it had been misplaced. This happens so often in cases I cannot understand how evidence just goes missing. Again, I'm not trying to be disrespectful to law enforcement. I could never be a cop, and I have so much appreciation for everything that police officers do and putting themselves out there, putting themselves on the line, etc. But come on. It's one thing after another in this case. They cannot catch a break and it's infuriating, especially in a case with so little evidence where you only have these certain things to go off. How does something like that get misplaced? After the Lassiters participated in the deposition, Susan Flores sent them an eviction notice kicking them out of the rental property. Luckily, Mary Lassiter was a badass and was like, yeah, great. I don't want to live here anyways. But before I go, how can I help with this investigation? Paraphrasing, of course. March 3rd, 1997, the police organized a search at Susan's property. This time, they remembered to bring cadaver dogs, and they brought a geologist. This geologist was able to perform ground-penetrating radar on the backyard and found some abnormalities. The geologist also noticed that there was evidence of fresh digging in the backyard, and the cadaver dogs alerted to a specific place in the backyard where a metal trash can used to be. In fact, it was a trash can that the Lasters were specifically told not to use, touch, or move. 
Ruben Flores had been very specific about this trash can when they moved in, and he picked it up a few weeks before this search. The geologist and the cadaver dogs were out in the yard, working their hardest, looking for anything they could find, but unfortunately, there still was no forensic team brought in to search the inside of the house, and they didn't dig up any of the yard at this time, which is so frustrating because, as we know, there was a big concrete slab that had been laid very soon after Kristen disappeared. The police didn't dig up the concrete where the dog alerted because they believed the dog would alert anywhere there was trash. The Your Own Backyard podcast brings up a very good point about this because the dogs are trained specifically to alert to human remains. These dogs are specifically trained to search trash and landfills. They're used to it. They can tell the difference between garbage and human remains. But the dogs alerting and the geologists finding abnormalities around a suspicious slab of concrete still wasn't enough for police to dig up this yard. Along with the dog's alerts, the geologist's opinions, and the glaring suspicion of that stupid concrete, Mary Lassiter had yet another story about her time living in the Flores rental property. For months after they moved in, the Lassiters could hear a weird beeping sound right outside the master bedroom in these new planters that had been put in the backyard. Every morning at 4.20 a.m., they heard what sounded like a watch alarm beeping outside the window. They tried to search the backyard many times looking for this watch. They dug around the planters but they hit another layer of concrete every time they tried. This is significant, possibly, and very important, because at the time that Kristen went missing, she'd been working as a lifeguard in the early mornings before her classes. She had to be to work at 5 a.m., which meant at about 4.20 a.m., she would be getting up. Eventually, the watch battery died and the alarm stopped. This next paragraph is from my original episode in 2020, while this case was still considered a cold case, um, and I want to make sure that this is easy to understand, so we're going to just kind of go in order, even though these next couple things have already been proved differently because of what information is out now. Just so you're not in the comments like, this has already been figured out. Uh, we're going in order of what how it happened. Does that make sense? So once the Lassiters moved out in April of 1997, Susan Flores moved back into the rental property and she has never left. The address of their home has been printed in articles and she still gets hate mail and nosy neighbors asking questions, but she will not leave. Ruben also gets the same hate mail and questions at his home, but after all this time, they do not want to move out of these houses. Personally, in my opinion, suspicious. Doesn't it seem like you would just leave if you had nothing to hide? Like, why would you want to stay in these houses where you're constantly being harassed and people are showing up at your home? And my suspicion was 100% correct. They were staying there because they were covering up a murder and evidence. But again, let's not get ahead of ourselves. We'll get into that in a bit. At one point during all of this back and forth of the police refusing to dig up the yard, the Flores family keeping their mouth shut, etc., Denise Smart made a photo collage of Kristen's baby pictures and school pictures and sent it to Susan Flores, mother to mother, trying to get her to see reason. And Denise sent this with a note pleading with Susan to come forward with any information that she had. Susan sent the collage back with a note saying, quote, If I wanted to see pictures of your daughter, I would have asked for them. Look at them yourself end quote. I have a lot of thoughts and opinions about that reaction from Susan, and I can't believe that anyone could be that cold, but I'm going to leave it at that because I'm not trying to get sued or have people yell at me. In May of 1997, almost exactly one year after Kristen went missing, another major mistake happened. At this point, there hadn't been enough evidence found to officially arrest Paul or officially require his parents to talk. The sheriff put out a statement saying, quote, we need Paul Flores to tell us what happened to Kristen Smart. The fact of the matter, we have very qualified detectives who have conducted well over 100 interviews, and everything leads to Mr. Flores. There are no other suspects, so absent from something from Mr. Flores, I don't see us completing this case, 
end quote. Talk about fumbling the bag. You just showed all your cards. This statement put every card on the table and fueled Paul's attorney to do something so insane I can't stand it. In November of 1997, Paul was officially deposed and he refused to answer any questions. Not one question. He wouldn't state the name of the high school he went to. He wouldn't state his sister's name, father's name, nothing. Every time the smarts attorney asked him a question, his own attorney would tap a piece of paper in front of him and he would read the same phrase every time. Quote, on the advice of my attorney, I refuse to answer that question based on the Fifth Amendment of the United States Constitution. End quote. There is a clip of this. I don't even know if you can call it an interview or a testimony, but it's in the Your Own Backyard podcast. And listening to him say that over and over made my blood boil. I eventually had to fast forward through it because every time he said it, I got more and more upset thinking about Kristen's parents sitting in that court, listening to them pull this shit. It seems like eventually the judge kind of felt that way too. And he basically said to Paul's attorney, what you're doing is ridiculous and a waste of everyone's time. He obviously said it much more profoundly and eloquently than that, but that's the idea. Paul's attorney was very snotty when he said something along the lines of, we're here to answer the questions that are required, so ask the questions or we will leave. They continue questioning Paul, and he continues with that same statement. Paul pled the fifth a total of 27 times. This deposition obviously did nothing to help the case move forward. There was also a bunch of back and forth of who is supposedly in charge of the investigation, like a game of freaking hot potato. The Cal Poly campus police said that they turned the case over completely to the San Luis Obispo County Sheriff's Office. And San Luis Obispo keeps saying that they're just quote unquote helping the Cal Poly campus police. So at first, everyone was trying to hold on to their own information. And now they're trying to say that they like they're trying to pass the blame off. In my opinion... That is a complete joke. It feels like everything about this investigation was a disaster up until this point. It's one thing for a case to go cold because there truly are no leads and not enough evidence, but to watch the ball get dropped over and over and no one would take responsibility, it makes my heart ache for Kristen's family because I can't imagine. Sitting here as a third-party outsider, it infuriates me. If that was my friend, if that was my sister, if that was my daughter, what are you supposed to do? What are you supposed to do? When the people who are in charge of it, eh, I'm not going to get into it. I'm not going to, I'm not going to do it. I'm not going to rant. Thankfully, someone was willing to call it how they saw it. The governor of California agreed that this case was a complete mess. And luckily, there was a tiny piece of good that came from this botched investigation. The Kristen Smart Campus Safety Act became a law in August of 1998. And this law requires campus police to team up with law enforcement immediately so that another situation like this can hopefully be avoided. I'm not going to get into all of the details because this episode is already getting long and we still have a ton of details to cover, but the Campus Safety Act was brought about just in time for another Cal Poly student. In November of 1998, a girl named Rachel Newhouse went missing. For Rachel, it was all hands on deck. They didn't treat Rachel's case as a runaway and they immediately started looking for her. For a time, people believed that Rachel and Kristen's cases were connected because a trail of Rachel's blood was found on a bridge near where she went missing. Not long after another girl went missing, Andrea Crawford went missing less than half a mile from where Rachel's blood was found and less than a month after the two disappearances, the killer confessed. Rex Allen Krebs said that he abducted and murdered both girls. Their bodies were quickly recovered nearby and people speculated that he could have also murdered Kristen, but her body was not found and Rex was in prison at the time of her disappearance. The Kristen Smart Campus Safety Act was a small glimmer of good that came out of this nightmare of a case. Unfortunately, Cal Poly still wasn't doing great at helping a smart family or even offering any kind of condolences. 
Apparently, the campus told the Smart family that they would put a Kristen Smart memorial bench on the campus, which is nice, right? In theory. But they said that they would put the bench on campus as long as the Smarts agreed to say that the campus was not at fault for what happened to Kristen and that they had the right to remove the bench whenever they wanted and they did not need to notify Kristen's family if they did so. So... What kind of an offer is that? The Smarts, of course, denied that garbage dump of an offer. There was also a point a little bit more recently in 2017 when Denise Smart went to the campus to request a copy of Kristen's transcripts, only to find out that the school had failed her in every single class. I'm assuming that's because she didn't show up for her classes the final week of school. In my opinion, putting failing grades in for a girl who went missing and was likely murdered on the college campus is such a slap in the face. They were able to get these failed grades removed, which the grades shouldn't have ever been marked that way in the first place, Kristen was not a failure. Seriously, the crap that this family has had to deal with is just mind-boggling. Eventually, the FBI got involved in the case and worked with the San Luis Obispo PD to form another search warrant for Susan Flores' property. By the time they went to do the search at Susan's house in 2000, there was a garage built on top of the spot where the cement had been laid. So if I'm understanding correctly, the summer that Kristen went missing, they laid a layer of cement, then did a second layer of cement to make these really shallow planters, and now they've built a garage on top of it. When they went to do the search, their warrant gave them the right to search the entire house and the whole yard. They searched all day, again using the ground-penetrating radar, and they determined they didn't need to dig up the concrete, pissing everyone off yet again. After the search in 2000, things got really quiet in Kristen's case. In 2011, a new sheriff was appointed who re-examined Kristen's case. This was a good step in the right direction, but it still took some time for any big developments. A few years after the new sheriff took over in September of 2016, 20 years after Kristen went missing, a big development was made. 25 FBI agents and 15 officers from the sheriff's department went to perform an excavation search on the Cal Poly campus. A new lead that they'd been following since 2014 led them to believe Kristen's remains, or at least evidence of Kristen's murder, could possibly be buried around the Cal Poly campus's P landmark. Earlier that year, in January of 2016, they took more cadaver dogs to the campus. They alerted near the P, which led the team to do a search of 20,000 cubic feet of dirt, which they said is about the equivalent of a dozen large moving trucks full of dirt. After four days of searching three different sites, it was announced that items of interest had been found during the dig, but they still couldn't find Kristen's remains. At the time of the search, it was not announced what kind of items they found, since it could hurt the progress of the investigation, and apparently there had been multiple new leads and new work done on Kristen's case over the years leading up to that search, and these things needed to be kept quiet because so much had already been known about the case. The investigators kept a lot of it to themselves, which is really good. The sheriff's office said in a press conference that the only reason they even spoke about doing this particular search was because it was in such a high traffic area that people would have figured out pretty quickly what they were doing. And then, of course, rumors would have been flying everywhere. So they wanted to stop that as much as possible. A few days after the search, it was revealed that remains had been found, but it was unclear if they were human or animal remains. The sheriff's office said they would not comment further on that until a full analysis had been done on the remains to determine if they were human or animal. From that search in 2017 up until about 2020, 2021, all of those things stayed quiet. There was never an update on those remains. So there's that evidence that has been sitting there. Again, we'll touch on that in part two. During this press conference, the police also said they were not ready to disclose where, but they were focusing on several other locations, which we will see in part two again. With a cold case this strange with so many twists and so many turns and so much evidence you would think there would be tons of specials made about Kristen you'd think there were you'd assume there were multiple podcasts and a ton of media attention but for a long time that just was not the case which is why as I mentioned in the top of the episode 
Chris Lambert decided to dive deep into this case and try to get some media attention for Kristen. As we have learned from multiple cases over the last few years, media attention can be the thing that puts pressure on law enforcement to solve cases. Chris started Your Own Backyard in September of 2019. The podcast ran from September to November with six episodes. Once the podcast started, there was a new wave of public support in Kristen's case. People raised money to get a new billboard to update the one that had been up since 1997. What everyone thought was going to be the last episode was released on November 11, 2019. That final episode spoke about possible new leads, leaving the case open-ended with hopes that there would be more updates in the near future. And not long after that episode aired, new developments came to light in Kristen's case. Almost 24 years after her daughter went missing, Denise Smart got a call from the FBI. In January of 2020, Denise was told, quote, Be ready. This is really going to be something you don't expect. We want to give you the support you need, end quote. January 29th, 2020, Kristen's family put out the following statement, quote, Congratulations to Chris Lambert for his outstanding podcast, Your Own Backyard. His seventh episode is live and it is a must listen. Thanks to Chris and all the supporters who have made an amazing difference, Your Own Backyard has been instrumental in renewing interest in Kristen's investigation and generating many new leads. We now know that the San Luis Obispo County Sheriff's Office has issued 18 search warrants of nine locations, conducted 91 new interviews, filed 364 supplemental reports, and obtained 140 new items of evidence. Later today, the Sheriff's Department will confirm that they now have in their possession two vehicles. Keep the faith and know that you are all making a difference, end quote. And that was absolutely right. Authorities announced that they had both vehicles that Paul had access to back when Kristen went missing. The reason they didn't already have these vehicles in custody was because they were very hard to track down. Apparently, there were multiple different stories told by the Flores family of where these cars went, but the gist, both cars were no longer in their possession shortly after Kristen disappeared. I don't believe in coincidences in these situations. In February of 2020, search warrants were served for four different locations. Two of the locations were in San Luis Obispo County, one was in Washington State, and one was in Los Angeles. At the time, there wasn't a ton of info on how these searches went because, again, they were keeping things very quiet to protect the integrity of the case that they were building against Paul Flores. But there was a statement from authorities saying that they found multiple items of interest during their searches that were being analyzed. In April of 2020, another search was performed at Paul Flores's home in Los Angeles. And during this search, Paul was detained and then released when the search was completed. Again, this search warrant was sealed and the items taken from Paul's home could not be disclosed because of that. After those searches in 2020, things were really quiet again for about a year until finally on April 13th, 2021, Paul and his father Ruben were both arrested. At a press conference, Sheriff Ian Parkinson confirmed, quote, I'm here this afternoon to announce the arrest of Paul Flores for the murder of Kristen Smart and the arrest of his father, Ruben Flores, as an accessory to the murder, end quote. That is where we will end part one of Kristen Smart's case. In part two, we will go into the arrest, trial, and finally the conviction of Paul Flores. And like I said, we will get into more of what they found in those different search warrants and all of the things that led up to them finally being able to arrest this piece of crap. As I've watched this case unfold and go from a cold case that hardly anyone knew about to finally seeing these arrests and new police work being done, it's been really amazing to see a whole community band together and demand justice for Kristen. And that's why it's so important that we keep talking about these cold cases because you just never know what can be solved with technology updates and fresh eyes on the case. So with that, make sure you are subscribed on YouTube or wherever you get your audio podcasts so you don't miss part two. I'll also have it linked in the show notes or the description box as soon as it's up. So if you're watching this in the future, you'll be able to easily find that. Thank you for listening to part one of Kristen Smart's case. I will talk to you soon.